0: It didn't look like much of a spacecraft, and that's because it wasn't. This strange agglomeration of metal tubes, all welded together into a frame that was more air than structure, sported a truss that jut up out of its rearmost section, leaning slightly forward over a cockpit that was entirely open to the air. Overhead, a fabric delta wing spread over the pilot like an umbrella, the only mechanism by which this odd little machine could stay aloft. It rested on three wheels like a tricycle, granting it the undeniable appearance of a children's toy, especially from a distance. But this machine was in fact a critical step forward for the next generation of American spaceflight. More than just a glorified hang glider, it was a prototype for a new landing system which was in development for the Gemini program, Mercury's long-anticipated follow-up. It buzzed around the sky over Edwards Air Force Base with a litany of test pilots at the controls, swooping in for controlled landings on the runway. At NASA, there were hopes that the next generation of astronauts, rather than plummeting out of the sky in balls of flame before smacking into the ocean with naught but a parachute and inflatable landing bag to cushion their fall, would instead be able to make graceful, soft landings like those made by traditional aircraft. But, to transition this piloted kite to a workable feature on a spacecraft would prove quite the challenge. Welcome to episode 22 of Frontier of Infinity, Gemini Rising. When we last left off, the United States space program and the nation as a whole were in crisis. Public skepticism regarding the massive expense required to fuel the moon program was on the rise. But more importantly, and more tragically, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in the city of Dallas, Texas. His death left the nation and the world reeling, and the American space program was certainly not spared the fallout. The loss of their main advocate left NASA unnerved, but their administrators, as well as the new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, were determined to see the moon program continued. Today, though, we're not going to talk about Apollo or even the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. Instead, we're going to take a step back and examine the long road that would eventually lead to the next generation of piloted American space travel in Project Gemini. Project Mercury had been a huge success for NASA and the United States. It had put the first American in space, the first American in orbit, and had allowed NASA to develop the tools and techniques required for reliable human spaceflight. Granted, it hadn't succeeded in pushing the U.S. into the lead of the space race, but as enthusiasm and support for space operations had crescendoed, the infrastructure that would be required for an American surge had been laid. Project Gemini was to be the first act in that surge, but it had been a long time in the making. As far back as 1959, since even before the first American flew into space, certain engineers at NASA and McDonnell Aircraft, the company which had built the Mercury capsules, were discussing ways that the Mercury spacecraft could be improved for future programs. It was immediately apparent that the Mercury's maneuverability – or rather lack thereof, was its greatest weakness. It could be shot into orbit and safely returned to Earth, but outside of rotating itself around, there was little that it could actually do to maneuver once it was in space. It seemed a logical next step to design a spacecraft with expanded maneuverability. But at this stage, little progress was actually made regarding how a better spacecraft could be designed. It was merely recognized that such a vessel would be very useful and even necessary as the years marched on. But as plans began to solidify for placing an American astronaut on the moon, the need for greater maneuverability became even more pronounced. Once it was decided that a lunar orbit rendezvous would be the technique used to reach the moon, the ability to execute an orbital rendezvous became paramount. The Mercury capsule was not capable of doing this, and NASA recognized that it would be massively advantageous to develop that capability before Apollo was ready to fly. Come 1961, it was tentatively hoped that Apollo missions could start flying as early as 1966, but that still would leave three years between the planned end of Project Mercury and the start of Apollo it was an opportunity to slot in another program, one that would allow NASA to keep their skills sharp and even develop new ones, all the while continuing the fight to gain ground on the Soviets. So it was decided that the improved Mercury project would go through, but that left a good many engineering questions unanswered. Most of the engineers at NASA were of the opinion that a modified Mercury capsule would be sufficient, Why reinvent the whole machine when you could just iterate on what had already proven effective? But among the dissenters was an engineer by the name of James Chamberlain. Chamberlain disagreed that a better Mercury would do. He insisted that a whole new space vehicle needed to be designed from the ground up, though it could still make use of the lessons learned from the design, testing, and flights of Mercury. In February of 1961, Chamberlain met with a team of designers from McDonnell to discuss the possibility of redesigning the Mercury capsule. And in subsequent meetings with senior NASA engineers Robert Gilruth and Abe Silverstein, Chamberlain was able to sway them to his side. He argued that the new spacecraft needed to be able to do a lot more than Mercury. Not just be maneuverable, It would also need to be able to carry multiple crew, to test the ability of a spacecraft to support more than one astronaut at a time, and to let the astronauts gain experience with operating a spacecraft as part of a flight team. This would all be necessary for the planned Apollo flights a much larger and more robust capsule would also allow NASA to test the feasibility and effects of long-duration space travel far in excess of what Mercury or even Vostok had managed to accomplish. After all, it was going to take many days for a crew to fly all the way to the moon, conduct surface activities, and then fly all the way back, at least a week. Detailed discussions between NASA and McDonnell led to a set of additional parameters as well. The Mercury capsule was an extremely complicated machine, and could be very difficult to maintain. The new capsule, while larger, would need to have its internal components arranged in such a way that they could be easily accessed, changed, and serviced. McDonnell was awarded a research contract to begin investigations into how all of this could be accomplished, and work on the new and improved American spaceship began. In the early days, it was referred to as the Mercury Mark II, but a series of design decisions made early on in the process guaranteed that more than just the capsule would be different. The escape tower, which had served as an important safety system on the Mercury, was replaced instead with ejection seats, as this would save a lot of weight and complexity in the machine. But this eliminated the Atlas launch vehicle, which had lifted the Mercury capsule. The issue was in the Atlas's fuel. The Atlas burned kerosene and liquid oxygen. These two fuels, in the event of a catastrophic failure on launch, would explode very quickly and very violently. There wasn't an ejection seat in the world that could throw an astronaut far enough away from the capsule to survive the blast. But luckily, there was another rocket available that could take the place of the Atlas. A new missile known as the Titan II was under development by the Martin Company for the Air Force, intended to serve as an intercontinental ballistic missile. The Titan was to burn a variety of storable fuel called Arizin-50, which was hypergolic, meaning that the fuel and oxidizer components would combust spontaneously on contact with one another, eliminating the need for an igniter. This type of fuel would not explode quite so violently in the event of an engine failure and would allow an ejection seat ample time to fling an astronaut away from the vehicle as soon as a problem was detected. The removal of the escape tower would save the new capsule around a thousand pounds in weight, a huge saving that could allow for other, more important components to be installed or expanded. Unlike Mercury, it would feature an equipment module attached to the crew capsule, wherein would be contained many of the ship's vital components like batteries, fuel, and drinking water, but all arranged in such a way that they could be easily accessed. The main body of the capsule would superficially resemble the Mercury capsule very closely. The bell shape had proven itself more than effective at allowing re-entry, so there was little reason to change it. But the new capsule would be quite a bit larger than its predecessor. One of the main reasons for this was because it would be able to carry two astronauts at once. Both Max Faget and Abe Silverstein were interested in a dual crew capsule, and so it was. The two astronauts would sit side by side, each with their own window to the outside, resulting in a capsule that was roughly twice the size of the single-seat Mercury. But one way in which the Mark II was intended to be very different from the Mark I was in its landing system. The old Mercury had used a system of parachutes and an inflatable landing bag to bring itself safely down into the ocean. But these sorts of landings were far from ideal. First, they required a massive number of personnel, ships, and aircraft to stand on alert around the world so that the capsule could be recovered wherever it came down. Sometimes, these vessels and their crews would have to be on alert for prolonged periods of time, as launches were scrapped or rescheduled. Then there were the safety concerns. Who could forget Gus Grissom's harrowing ordeal aboard Liberty Bell 7 when it began to flood and sink? That was a situation which could very easily have turned deadly. All of these concerns meant that NASA was looking for an alternative to the splashdown landing, which led to the proposal of the radically different and wildly imaginative Parawing concept. The para-wing was an idea which had been floating around at NASA for quite some time. An engineer employed at the Langley Aeronautical Laboratory named Francis Regalo and his wife Gertrude had come up with a design for an inflatable delta-wing. They had built a prototype in their garage and were even awarded a patent for the design. But it wasn't until they came across an article by none other than Werner von Braun in 1952 that they got the idea to apply it to a spacecraft. In the article, von Braun laid out a plan for using fixed glider wings to return burnt out rocket stages to the ground where they could be recovered. The Regalo wing could potentially serve that end. As it was inflatable, it could be voided of air and then packed very tightly inside the spacecraft's hull until it was needed. Once in the atmosphere, the wing could deploy, inflate, and provide both lift and control on the way down. It would also serve as a lightweight method to slow the spacecraft before landing. This option was quite attractive to the other NASA engineers, as it would potentially save weight and would reduce the need for scores of ships and hundreds of aircraft to stand ready to recover the capsule when it came down. Francis Regallo was approached to discuss the possibility of using he and his wife's idea for the Mercury Mark II, and he was on board. Chamberlain then awarded a research contract to North American Aviation to assess the idea for feasibility and develop design concepts. North American would later also be handed a contract for the construction of the Parawing. So, the capsule was being designed, the Parawing was underway as well, and a new launch vehicle had been selected. But there was still one very important component missing. The new project needed a name. In December of 1961, a competition was held within NASA to determine the best name for their new program. In the end, it was an engineer named Alex Nagy who carried the day. He suggested Gemini, a name with a double relevance to the project. Gemini in the Zodiac represents the twins, which corresponded to the two astronauts that the new spacecraft would support. Additionally, in astrology, Gemini is influenced by Mercury, just as the design of the Gemini capsule was spawned from the Mercury one. In addition to getting his name attached to the project, he also got to take home a bottle of bourbon as a prize. Later that same month, a contract was awarded to McDonnell for the construction of the capsules. They had proven themselves with the Mercury contract and were the natural choice. But as the program really got underway in 1962, it began to encounter a number of problems. First, as is so often the case, it began to run well over budget. By August of 1962, the program's cost had shot up to $925 million. This problem was only exacerbated when Congress refused to meet NASA's budget request for that year, awarding them $110 million fewer dollars than they had hoped for. Especially grim for Chamberlain, Congress specifically requested that the deficit be cut from his new Gemini project. These monetary problems saw the program shrunk and the timetable extended. Some problems also emerged with the new Titan II. Specifically, it tended to shake more than was comfortable on launch, but some careful engineering managed to ameliorate this problem. A much larger engineering problem was the para-wing. Scale models of the wing had been tested extensively in wind tunnels, and a manned variant with a seat and three wheels underneath were used for testing at Edwards Air Force Base. But the first two full tests of the new landing system on a capsule failed miserably. Work would continue on it, but it was possible to replace the Parawing with the tried-and-true parachute if the need arose. But back on the bureaucratic side of things, new issues were on the rise. James Chamberlain was not terribly communicative with the NASA brass regarding the setbacks his project was facing. When NASA Deputy Director Robert Siemens made a trip out to Houston in 1963 with the Defense Secretary to check in on Gemini's progress, he found the program in a much worse state than he had imagined. To make matters worse, it was now estimated that the total cost for Project Gemini would exceed a billion dollars. This threw Siemens into a rage, and James Chamberlain was removed as the project head replaced instead with one Charles Matthews, who had previously led the Manned Space Flight Center's Directorate for Research and Development. With Matthews now at the helm, he quickly changed the program's testing regime, simplifying it while paying special attention to the still-inoperable Parawing. New designs, new test regimens, and copious amounts of money were all sunk into the Parawing design. But with five consecutive failed tests of the system, which ended in April of 1964, the Parawing was finally terminated. It was simply too costly and too difficult to make work when there were more reliable systems that NASA could lean on. North American Aviation didn't give up on it, though, and with their own company funds, they continued to perform tests on the Parawing. They did manage to fly it successfully on April 30th, and then continued to run additional tests, which saw gradual improvement in the system's performance. But by that point, NASA was already out. As far as they were concerned, the peril was a lost cause, and they wanted no part of it moving forward. The first test flight of the Gemini Titan was conducted on April 8th, 1964, which saw an uncrewed Gemini soar aloft on the top of a Titan Agena. It reached a slightly higher orbit than had been planned and remained in flight for just shy of four days before atmospheric drag pulled it back down. It was a successful test and a good sign for the coming program. However, the Gemini capsule was not yet qualified to carry a human. The next test was to take place that summer, but a volley of hurricanes bowling up the coast posed some problems. The testing couldn't go through and was pushed back to November, eliminating any hopes of launching a crewed Gemini before the end of the year. These delays would prove quite troublesome for the project, and it would shatter any hopes that NASA had had of launching their new program before the Soviets could go through with theirs. On October 12th, the first mission of the Voshod program flew, marking the start of the next great era in Soviet spaceflight. Once again, the Americans were caught flat-footed while the Soviets were soaring ahead with a new project. But it wouldn't be long before Gemini was ready to fly and the first flight of Voshod would be answered. When we return, we're going to shift our focus to the Soviet side and examine the development and flights of the Voshod program. After the lull that stretched from the summer of 1963 to the autumn of 1964, the space race is about to heat up once again. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars.